Oh, it's such a, a misconception, right? That joy and work are separate because the reality is that little moments of joy can radically improve our performance at work. Welcome to What Workers Want, the new 360 Real Time, a Steelcase podcast about exactly what our name says, what workers want, and how the places we work are changing to help people thrive and ideas flourish. I'm your host, Katie Pace. Today, we're going to hear about how the things all around us every day can bring us joy, or not. And our guest says joy has everything to do with our work. First, we want to remind you to subscribe to What Workers Want and share this podcast with a friend who could use a little more joy in their life. Plus, if you didn't catch our recent five-part series on the Open Office Truth, make sure you visit our archives for that series at stewcase.com slash openofficetruth. Today, we're going to hear my conversation with author Ingrid Fettel-Lee, who wrote Joyful, The Surprising Power of Ordinary Things to Create Extraordinary Happiness. Ingrid is a former design director for IDEO. She founded the website The Aesthetics of Joy, and her TED Talk on joy has been viewed 17 million times. I caught up with her at home to find more about how we find our joy in life and in work. Well, Ingrid, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. So, Ingrid, I loved your book. And one of the things I love so much about it is how you describe joy as different than happiness. And specifically, you write, happiness is something we evaluate over time, where joy is an intense experience in the moment. We might smile or laugh or jump up and down. So what do you think are the biggest misconceptions about joy? I think the biggest misconception about joy is that it is an extraneous thing that it's not essential, right? Um, So joy is one of our six primary emotions. It's something that psychologists know that we people all around the world feel it and express it in the same way. Um, So we have anger, surprise, disgust, fear, sadness. And the only one that's inherently positive is joy. And so I think that often leads us to believe that joy is just this this extra in life, and we're just striving for good enough. Um, But joy is the emotion that's connected to thriving. Joy is the emotion that tells us when we're moving towards the things that can help us thrive in life. Wow. So that's really interesting. So as a designer, you were interested in joy from the perspective of the physical world. And as you started to collect memories and experiences, you found things that brought joy to lots of people, like balloons and bubbles and rainbows and confetti. So what is it that makes those things so joyful? That was the question, you know, when I got that back and I thought, okay, I started putting pictures of these things up on the wall. And every day I would look at it and just try to make sense of it. And then one day something just clicked And I saw all these patterns. And what I realized is that um, there were certain physical attributes that were consistent across these different objects. Many of the objects that I had up there had several of these attributes. Um, They were things like bright color. Everywhere you go around the world, if you see a celebration, you'll see bright color. And you try to imagine a celebration in tones of black and gray. And it doesn't quite have the same resonance, right? So everywhere we go, we see bright color. Um, Round shapes was another one. You see round shapes throughout childhood. Um, I mentioned bubbles and balloons and hula hoops. You have merry-go-rounds and Ferris wheels and, you know, big round eyes that kids have. Um, Puppies are often round. Um, So there's something about roundness that stuck out to me. Um, Things that float and fly are often joyful. Um, Things that give us a sense of elevation, butterflies and birds and hot air balloons and and things like that. 
And symmetrical shapes is another one, symmetrical shapes and repeating patterns. And so I started to notice these patterns and I realized that it was not necessarily the things themselves. It was these these attributes, which I call aesthetics of joy. So I wonder then, like, can you have too much joy or is there a perfect sweet spot for joy? You know, if you think about the definition of joy as being the things that bring us to life, then on some level, no, right? Because um, the more joy we have, the more alive we feel. But I also feel that, you know, what's important about thinking about joy in moments, as opposed to thinking about this idea of a persistent happiness, that we're always in this constant state of happiness, is that what this is really about is having a robust emotional engagement with the world. And so that means you're going to have sad moments and you're going to have angry moments and you're going to have anxious moments. Um, and so it's the same with the aesthetics of joy in our environment. We don't want all aesthetics of joy layered all at once because that might be a circus. But generally, the environments that we're starting from are so joyless that we could probably go 10 to 25 percent more joy in the average nursing home. We could probably go 50 percent more joy and we still probably would have room to add more. <laughs> well, speaking of places that could probably use more joy, let's talk about work. And I don't, I don't mean to say that all workplaces don't have joy, but talk to our listeners a little bit about why joy matters at work. Why should workplaces think about joy Oh, it's such a, a misconception, right, that joy and work are separate because the reality is that little moments of joy can radically improve our performance at work. So, for example, when salespeople exhibit genuine joy, we are more likely to return to a store. We spend more time browsing in a store and we're more likely to give a higher customer satisfaction rating. So that's in a frontline context. In an office context, research shows that managers who exhibit more joy have teams that complete their work with less effort and do so in a more coordinated way. Um, there's research that shows that joy influences our working memory in a positive way, working memory being the, the function that it enables us to complete work and tasks, um, which is why some studies show that we are 12% more productive in a state of joy. So if you could get 12% more productivity without having to invest in some really, you know, a, a lot of the sorts of initiatives that you would have to, to think about another way to get that amount of productivity. I mean, I think that's pretty radical just by making some changes to the environment. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty incredible when we hear the statistics in those studies that it makes me wonder, like, so how do we get there? How do you think we can bring more joy to the physical environment? I think it starts with thinking about the the people who are working in that space and um, and recognizing, you know, they want to both complete their work, but they want to experience joy while they're doing it. Um, one of the questions I always start by asking is what's the energy like in the space? That's sort of that intangible feeling, right? When you walk into a space and you're like, how does this, what's the vibe here? Um, another really good one is, do you hear laughter in the halls? Um, when you walk through the halls of your office, do you ever hear laughter? I think energy is a really big one because energy is the currency of work. And when we are energetic, we feel engaged and ready to work. And when we don't feel energetic, we're dragging ourselves through our work. So energy, you know, is the first of the 10 aesthetics of joy that I talk about. But I also think it's really foundational at work. 
I think a lot of companies think of energy as the employee's domain, right? What you feed yourself, how hydrated you are, whether you exercise, all of those things are the ways that we modulate our energy. But there are a lot of spatial factors that influence energy. And one of the biggest ones, I mean, color is definitely one of them. And there are studies that show that people working in brighter, more colorful environments are more alert. Um, so that is one way to do it. But I think lighting is another big piece of it. Um, so there's research that shows that when workers have sunnier desks when they're near a window, they sleep 46 minutes more per night and they're more active during the day. So having more natural light and even having um, more beneficial artificial light. Philips is testing lighting systems that can give the energy boost in the afternoon that's equivalent to a cup of coffee um, and just doing that uh, using the surroundings. So I think there are ways that we can start to imagine that an office can cultivate a, a better level of energy for its employees. Yeah. I mean, I can attest to the power of natural light. It certainly helps me focus. So if we know that, like we know that maybe a painting on the wall helps or natural light helps or color for furniture, like if that's what makes people joyful, productive, helps them sleep better and gives them energy, then why are so many offices so drab? Right. Why do these offices all look the same? And how did we get here? So I think we've lived in a world for a very long time that has been very separate between mind and body. So the workplace was designed for the mind. It was designed to be a rational place with no distractions where you came and you got your work done and that was the, the space. Now we understand that actually a lot of our thinking is embodied and that uh, a lot of our productivity has to do with how we feel physically and our emotions. All of those things are connected, right? I mean, I think there's a, also, there's one specific thing that we can point to, which is the Hawthorne studies. The Hawthorne studies were conducted in the 20s and 30s. Um, and the intent was actually, they were funded in part by GE. And their intent was to prove that lighting and that physical environment influenced productivity. Because the idea was, if you could prove that, then you could sell more light bulbs. And the Hawthorne studies ended up coming to the conclusion that that didn't matter. And so what happened as a result is that all of the research and organizational psychology around the workplace focused on social interactions, focused on interactions between managers and employees, focused on what are the, the dynamics, the human dynamics in the organization that make people succeed. And it effectively cut off all interest in how the physical workplace influences productivity and the worker. And those studies have started to be reexamined. Um, the data that was originally thought lost has been uncovered. And people are analyzing them and finding that um, not only do they not show what they originally concluded, but they actually, in some of the studies, seem to show weak effects in the opposite direction. Now we have so much more research that does show that the environment may matters, but it's taken a really long time to catch up because of that. Yeah. And that was in the 20s and 30s. So that's like super interesting. But it makes me wonder about the impact physical things in the workplace can have on our organizational culture, or like maybe you would describe it as the energy of a space. Yeah. I mean, culture is vital. And I think that the two things interact. One thing that I often look for is whether a space reflects the brand or whether it reflects a company's values. Because I think that sometimes those are different. Ideally, they'll be aligned. But if they're not aligned, um, you can see when a company has branded their interior office environment and used a lot of the brand colors and put a lot of logos in places and things like that, but the space doesn't actually reflect their values. And a space that doesn't reflect the values is not a great prop for culture. 
Um, so the way that I think about setting, you know, it, it's really like the setting of a book. Um, my undergraduate degree was in creative writing. And I remember way back um, when I was learning, you know, how to write fiction. And my professor said, whenever you're stuck, write the setting first, because the setting gives the character something to do. And it's the same way with culture, right? What we do, the way we interact in a space will often be dictated by what you put into that space. Um, and so, yeah, so I think shaping a space that makes the values tangible. You know, I think a lot about this with um, the Kickstarter space, for example. And uh, just to describe it for people who, who may not be familiar with it, Kickstarter is a business that's all about um, empowering people to create and crowdfund, you know, their dreams. And so it's very much about independence and freedom. And when you go into that space, they converted an old factory in Greenpoint, which could have been quite dense and heavy, but they filled it with nature. So there's a central courtyard that is all glassed in that you can actually walk out to. It's not, you know, many companies have glass courtyards with plants, but you can't actually touch them or go out and be with them. But actually there are doors that open and windows that open that let the nature in. There are gardens on every level. Um, there's a roof garden uh, where employees can actually put their hands in the dirt. And, and the spaces are very flexible. Um, so you'll find all sorts of little spaces tucked in where, uh, so first of all, everyone gets access to that nature. It's not a perk. Um, everyone has views of the outside. So it's not just something that, you know, the, the people in the corner office get. It's egalitarian. Everyone gets it. Um, and there's a sense of freedom because you have the outside brought in in this way. Um, so the values of the company are reflected in that space. And it's a space that I think feels really good for that reason. That sounds awesome. You talk at some point about some of these organizations that put in slides or we've seen ball pits or we've just seen silly, silly stuff. And it feels really, really forced. But at the end of the day, like you still have to work, right? You go to work to work. Totally. And I think some organizations, that is the right space for them to be in, right? Is that silly space. And that works really well. But, but you know, my hope with the idea of having 10 aesthetics of joy is that it's a palette. And um, you don't have to paint with every color at once, right? And so understanding that you can tune into the type of joy that feels right for you and bring that into your space it broadens out the ways that we're able to think about joy, that it doesn't have to be entirely silly or playful. And I've actually seen that aesthetic of play, the roundness and the softer forms and curves. I've seen that done in actually really adult ways. It doesn't have to mean just putting a slide in. So, you know, the wing, which is a co-working space for women, um, which is, you know, started in New York and, and has been popping up in many cities around the country. It's a space where I work and it's a very... Um, lighthearted space, actually. There's a lot of curvy furniture and colors and, you know, it doesn't feel like your typical office. And there is that sense of sort of warmth and play and joy, but it's not a ball pit or a slide. And that reminds me when I told one of my colleagues I was going to have a chance to speak to you, she said, oh, ask her about squares. And, you know, she's right because you talk about how round things and arches bring us joy. But at work, we're surrounded by so many rectangles in our conference rooms and floor plans. Yeah, I think I had to cut some of this from the book, actually, because this chapter on play and roundness got so long that my editor just said that it, enough, enough is enough. Um, but but I think it's interesting to understand how we got to a place where rectangles are the default method of building, right, and not circles. Because if you look at a lot of ancient architecture, one-room dwellings are often round. As houses move from, you know, 
small one-room dwellings, they, they became less round and more rectilinear because it's easier to append rooms and build onto a structure when it is rectilinear. Um, and the same with levels, right? If a building has a, a dome top, it's very hard to put a second story on it. So over time, we ended up in this world that you know is rectilinear. And then as mass production came into play, it's much easier to create rectilinear beams and you know things like that than it is to create round dwellings. And so I think that for better or worse, this is the world we live in. And, and when architects have tried to create rounded buildings in the modern world, they've been met with the fact that all of the rest of the systems are set up for squares, right? Um, and so, you know, when I think about how we live in that kind of world, yes, of course, it would be nice to add a few more curves, a curved wall here or there that can sort of soften the edges, curves in surface treatments, um, you know, just painted on walls um, can also bring that in. There's a lot of ways we can add that softness to a rectilinear building. But I think that is the frame that we're working within. And sometimes for symmetry, rectangles work better. They give us a sense of harmony, right? That sense yeah. of balance. So rectangles aren't all evil or all bad. They're not all bad. They're not all bad. Yeah. yeah. Well, okay, Ingrid, before we go, if you were to give some quick advice, like very simply, how do we add more joy to our home or to our workplace? So we talked about color. I think that's a big one. And sometimes that's an easier one to do at home than it is to do at work. Um, you know, at work, I think you can always start small. I love like a, a brightly colored mug is something that you can put on your desk. You can have your coffee in every day or your tea and, and it just gives you this little burst of joy. Um, so color is a big one. I talked about light, um, also very important for the home. And then again, this is something for both home and work, nature, bringing the outside in. Um, so there's tons of research that shows that nature has helps restore our concentration and attention. And while that sounds primarily like something you'd want at work, that faculty of um, attention and concentration is the same faculty that allows us to make decisions. And it's the same faculty that prevents us from being overloaded uh, during social interactions. So when we get irritable, when we get short with the people who are around us, often it's because that ability to focus, that, that sort of reserve of attention is being depleted. So having plants in your space, um, having, if you have, you know, green views at your window, making sure that those are visible, don't cover them up with heavy window treatments, right? Right. And we know that all the round, colorful things in the world still leave some people searching for joy at work. Like maybe they have a bad boss or they hate what they do or they dislike a coworker. So the question is, are there other things that have to be in play to feel joy? I think, of course, there's an interplay between the social dynamics in an office and the spaces in an office. The way that I would think about it, let's say you have a, you know, a negative dynamic, you're going to have to address that as well, right? You can't, I mean, there's not going to be true joy in a workplace if you have those negative dynamics at play. But I think what the environment can do is it can take some of the pressure off. Um, because a lot of the ways that these interventions work is they work on our unconscious minds. So they set us at ease. It's hard to have good social interactions with people if we don't feel safe, for example. Um, and a lot of the environments that we create in offices have subtle unconscious things that make us feel less safe. Um, a big one is the sense of prospect and refuge. So very open plan offices where people feel very exposed can trigger a sense of a lack of safety. 
We like to have views. So there are things about an open plan office that are really joyful, right? Because we get that freedom. Um, our eyes can focus on the distance, which in many, you know, if you're stuck in one small cube, you don't actually have that. You have no distance view. So we love that feeling of being able to see and get a sense of everything that's going on. Um, but we also need refuge. We need to feel protected. We need to feel that we have a sense of safety. If we don't feel that and we just feel like we're, you know, a, a, an animal in an open field, right, then that's going to affect our interactions with other people. So making sure that you have, you know, the fundamental sense of safety, of comfort, and a sense of vibrancy, energy, right, positive energy in a space, those things can take some of the edges off those dynamics or, or give you a context to begin solving some of those deeper problems. So Ingrid, what's next? Where is your research taking you now? Yeah, that's a good question. It's taking me to a couple different spaces at once. You know, one thing that I'm working on um, that's going to launch soon is a free interview series that looks at joy in different aspects of our life. So I am looking a little bit at joy at work. This is really for individuals, for people who want to learn more about how to take this deeper into their lives. But I also am doing a piece of work, and I, I don't know what form it will take yet, around this idea of extending at root what our spaces should do in our home or in our work anywhere is reflect what we value and starting to understand the aesthetics of joy as values, um, values around, uh, you know, how we design our lives so that we feel most alive and how do we create spaces that do that for ourselves and for others. Well, Ingrid, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm going to go add some colorful round things to my workplace right now and even my home. It was a joy. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Ingrid Fettel Lee, author of Joyful, The Surprising Power of Ordinary Things to Create Extraordinary Happiness. To hear more What Workers Want podcasts with authors like Simon Sinek and Adam Grant, visit our archives at steelcase.com slash podcasts. Plus, to revisit our five-part series on the open office truth, go to steelcase.com slash open office truth. Thanks for listening. <laughs>